this is a third in a, a series of uh, explorations into aging, sickness, and death. Some of you may have come here thinking Steve was here. I, I don't know if that's what you want to listen to tonight. But. <laughs> Um, any people here, this is the final question of this sort, <laughs> who were here the last time this was given, the last talk? So there's a bit of continuity. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to be doing is, to some degree, every time we m move ahead, uh, summarizing what's already been said, but not in a detailed way, more the essence of it. Uh, so of necessity, there'll be some repetition. And how long we go, I really don't know. I mean, I'm just going to, I think uh, probably the day will come. I don't know whether it's sooner or later where I hope a few of you just hang me upside down and shake me. And if nothing more on this subject comes out, then we can all be free of it. Get on with our life. Um, The interest in aging, sickness, and death uh, is an ancient one. It goes back to the time of the Buddha. And uh, it's always been considered an integral part of uh, vipassana practice. It hasn't been brought into the West too much, uh, for obvious reasons, I think. We just want to have a good time. And we see this as uh, uh, in opposition to that. Uh, but it's uh, very, very much a part of all the uh, traditions. I would say all spiritual traditions. How could this be avoided? Um, the use of, uh, there are specific meditation techniques, and as uh, time unfolds, I'll mention some of them. Uh, those are more, uh, are best done in the practice groups and retreats that we have here or other places. Uh, in some cases, you, it might be so obvious that you can get started on your own if, you're not, if you don't have a meditation practice, but uh, I would say all of what I'm saying is really directed to practitioners. That's uh, why I asked the question. Uh, there are a number of reasons for that. For one, uh, I don't think you'll be able to do as we move on. I don't know if we'll get that, go into it tonight, but as we move on into actual practices, I don't think you'd be able to do what's being suggested here realistically unless you've spent some time with your mind, unless there's been some mind training, because you're going to be asked to look at aging, asked to look directly at sickness and at our fear of death or the fact of death. And uh, that isn't an easy thing for anyone to do, but if you haven't had some training and also some understanding as to why you do it, then uh, this might uh, really not be too useful for you. Um, the, the teachings on what are called maranasati, or death awareness, uh, have a number of values. I think as we go on, you'll see that there may be even more than what I'm listing uh, that you personally derive from it. Uh, one, if you intentionally take up the notion that you are subject to aging, subject to illness, and to death, intentionally take that up as a meditation. 
uh, or as a reflection. And we can specifically go into that. And there'll be an opportunity for questions for us to talk these things over. Um, what will happen if you, if you take that up? It would, uh, probably not surprising if you uh, prime the pump and uh, invite the mind to bring up the fact, because this is not a theory, the fact that each and every one of us in this room must age. We all mu also will get ill and we must die. That's just true. Everyone on the planet, at one day there'll be no one left. N no one. All these political intrigues and all the rest of it. <laughs> Maybe there'd be no planet. I don't know. But um, so in that sense, it's asking for trouble. That is, most people want to avoid this. As Woody Allen put it in one of his films, he said, uh, you know, if you have a better quote, help me out. Something like, it's not that I'm afraid of dying. It's just that I don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> okay. uh, the Dharma attitude is, is, is quite different. We acknowledge we are afraid of dying. We may even be terrified of it. And we do want to be there when it happens. Now, I don't know. You may not share that view. Some of you, are, uh, I, I guess, are rather new to this perspective. Uh, so one of the values of, of practices like this is to uh, invite what's inside us. It's not to, to uh, put something inside of us that isn't there. It's more uh, to see what's there. And if you're human, you must have some relationship to aging, sickness, and death. Let's just call it death awareness. Uh, and there are practices which, free, which unfold differently for each one of us, which will arouse fear if it's there, apprehension if it's there. And that's why you need a practice, because otherwise it would be an exercise in a kind of uh, sadism on my part. You know, it's kind of to get, maybe it's like a Stephen King film, to get you to be just terrified and then uh, see you around, have a good life. Uh, because there are meditations where you go through the stages of the decomposition of the body or you, uh, through, through suggestion, reflect on obvious truths of, the, of uh, the nature of this body. So the whole point is uh, for there to be a balance between what is invited and brought up that's coming out of you, and it'll be different for each one of us. And then our capacity to work with that skillfully in order to see deeply into it and to free ourselves from it. If Dharma is about anything, it's about liberty. It's about freedom. It's about liberation. It has to be. That's uh, over and over again. If it's the Buddhist teaching, that's really what he's talking about, freedom. Well, if we were terrified of something, we're not free. If we're denying something, we're not free. If we're negating and avoiding and so forth, we're not free. So one value is to uh, bring stuff to the surface, stoke the, the flame, so to speak, but then to be there as it comes up and to know what to do with it, to bring mindfulness and insight into it, to be able to see, for example, the changing nature, the impermanent, and finally, empty nature of it. And so that at very least, we reduce the fear of death and of aging. And for some people, uh, perhaps be done with it altogether. It doesn't mean uh, everyone must age, get sick, and die. But I don't think everyone has to be uh, crippled by that. I don't think so. Uh, so that's one value. Another value uh, has to do with, um, because we don't reflect on aging and sickness, 
and death, uh, often there's a tremendous vanity and egotism and even an arrogance. Uh, when we're young, it's around being young. You know, youth is wasted on the young. Uh, nothing can stop us. We're uh, immune to everything, uh, etc. Uh, and in the process of not understanding the temporary condition that is called youth, we sometimes uh, do things verbally and physically that are very, very harmful for ourselves and for others. Sometimes our entire life has changed and there's not much we can do about it. And so a reflection on understanding that uh, it's not to not enjoy youth when you're young, but to put it into perspective. And I don't think that's part of most people's education. I think we just, we just run wild when we're young, and then some of us learn from bumping into walls enough, and some of us don't. Uh, so these reflections uh, can help us put, let's say, health in perspective as well. It's the same thing. If you're uh, blessed and fortunate to have a reasonably strong constitution and the ability to function well, have lots of energy, recover quickly from illnesses, and haven't had any serious accidents, there can be a, a vanity and, and an arrogance around that, which can also uh, result in actions, verbal and, and otherwise, uh, that are lacking in wisdom and compassion and that are harmful. And as you begin to see that uh, health is something that arises and passes away, we don't own it. It's good to be grateful if you have it. There are certain things we can do uh, to encourage it, to protect it, but finally it's out of our control. Does it, can anyone, no matter how much bread and circus you funnel into your body, do you think that you're not going to get sick, old, and die? Do you think there are any guarantees for you can fast, get ralphed, get acupunctured, massaged, do all yoga, come to IMS here, eat vegetables, organic only? Uh, it's good. I mean, I try to do all that. <laughs> I do. I do. I'm a health fattest. Uh, but I learned long ago that you do it and then you throw your hands up because there's some lawfulness that's, out of, that's beyond all of our plans. We don't, we don't own that lawfulness, it's, it's unfolding. And we can do what's sensible to try to uh, live correctly, but that's as far as it goes. And as for death, my goodness, if uh, uh, all, the, all of us really knew that we were going to die, uh, could we be doing the things we're doing to each other? I mean, if we all, all the political leaders and the antagonists and the uh, ethnic hatreds and the racial hatreds and the class hatreds and the gender hatreds and all the rest, if we just looked at each other and understood that we're all comrades in aging, sickness, and death, really did it. It's a practice, by the way. It's, a, it's done in the forest traditions of Thailand, which is where I learned it. Uh, it's done with animals. It's done with uh, shining the light of, light of death on life uh, is that. That is, when you uh, reflect on some of these facts, uh, it puts whatever is happening in your life into perspective. And I think a lot of what uh, you shine the light on doesn't stand up. Most of it is uh, trivial and petty and not worth hurting anyone for. And yet we do it. We don't look and then when the smoke clears we uh, want forgiveness or this or that. Um, so that's, that's another value. Somehow Understanding that you don't have forever, and neither does anyone else as you see a person, uh, can enable you to be much more compassionate. We're all in the same boat. It's the exact same boat. Uh, 
the Titanic is, this is it. We're, we're on it. And it's not just 331, it's the whole planet. Every, everything that's alive is, is sailing on that boat. It, would make, it could make quite a difference. So these reflections soften the heart. They can soften the heart and help us have uh, a much deeper understanding of uh, everyone who's in this together with us. Um, the other value, the, the last value that I'd like to get into today, tonight, uh, is what is in Pali called Samvega, uh, which is a term the Buddha used for uh, when we see the, uh, how fragile life is, that life is very, very delicate. After all, uh, any one of us can die at any moment. I mean, if you have any doubts about that, uh, just check the news out. It's just true. We may go on for quite a long time. We may not. Uh, as you begin to understand that it's natural to get old, to, to get sick, and to die, that no one is exempt from that. And to understand, you know, often we know this about everyone else. Uh, and we haven't taken it in, in the Bhagavad Gita, one of the uh, most astonishing things it said is that people can live their life and see death all around them and still not understand that it, it's about them too. And so uh, the reflection here has to do with understanding uh, the nature of life, that it's uncertain, uh, that we have it, that it's precious, but it's uncertain. And because we see this, and this is the essence of the, this notion of Samvega, and that's why this is particularly relevant for people who are uh, practicing some practice or another, some uh, spiritual meditation practice or another, uh, that kind of lights a fire under our bun uh, to get on with it, essentially to put our priorities in order. Because if you, if, you, if you realize that you don't have forever, not as an idea merely, but if you take it in deeply and reflect on it and uh, it gets to you finally, you finally get it, uh, then it at least can have the effect of encouraging you uh, to put your priorities in order, to examine your life, to see how you're living. And it's already done some of that at the center in small ways where people uh, shift what they put their time, energy, and money into. Uh, it can uh, awaken you to uh, how precious the people in your life are. You can, uh, if you're stingy with your love, maybe you won't be so stingy. See, uh, impermanence, because things are impermanent, doesn't mean they're useless. It can be quite the contrary, because when we realize that everything is uh, short-lived, that, uh, that it's subject to the law of change and impermanent, uh, that can, make, uh, can help you understand how precious and valuable it is. So seeing it is not all bad news. Some of that can awaken us to how precious life is, what we have here. And of course, since this is taught uh, expressly from the teachings of the Buddha, uh, the deepest meaning of Samvega is that you have a practice and by understanding that you don't have forever, whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person, that you really put some real energy into practice. And it can 
uh, there can be quite a conversion of the heart if you get this. I mean, suddenly your practice can change overnight when you understand uh, that uh, this has to be a vital priority. But now that is something that those of you who are rather new, uh, maybe you'll hear it as another doctrine or an ideology, and, which of course it can be. I don't think that has much power finally. It's certainly not encouraged around here or at most real, any, I would say, real Dharma centers. Uh, you have to see it for yourself. It's not a belief system that is being encouraged here. You have to get it yourself. You have to see that, uh, that some form of meditation is uh, not a luxury item. It's not just sitting down a few minutes each day, 20 minutes in the morning and night, calming down and then getting on with your life uh, the way you always have done. That's helpful. Maybe you'll be less stressed out, burnt out, burnt and all that. And that's fine. No one, you can use the practice to whatever extent you wish to use it. But its intent has much more depth than that. Um, so uh, those are some of the values that can come out of such meditations. Now, if you read the ancient text, but also just people like ourselves who've been doing it, um, even though the content is about aging, sickness, and death, it's remarkable as if you, uh, once you get over the initial problem with it, perhaps, and not all, everyone has that, how life can become lighter uh, and how refreshing it can be. Because the truth is that this is true. You know, that let's say that, uh, that everything must change and it must change in this direction. That's a fact. And if we're living as, as if that's not true, to some degree, there's a burden there. There's something that uh, we're not facing, we're, we're carrying it with us. And once you align yourself with the way things are, it's a kind of relief. It can be. Again, this is not an ideology that you're supposed to take on and try to make yourself feel and be. But if you examine things and, and start getting more comfortable with the way things are, the natural lawful, lawfulness of it all, and uh, see that you're not being singled out, you know, that this is Every, everything that, uh, that is born must die. Everything, and it's always been this way. Uh, and you have a choice, since that law is not going to change. It doesn't look like it. It won't be repealed. Okay. So what choice do we have? Uh, we either learn how to live harmoniously with that law, or we fight it, avoid it, deny it, and play all these games around it. It's a bumpy ride. If it worked, great, I wouldn't be giving this talk, and perhaps some of you wouldn't be here. I don't think it does work. So if you put this together, what the Buddha's message, in some, in some of the suttas, uh, which are teachings of the Buddhas, uh, most of them started out by someone asking a question and then the Buddha could go on and on, uh, and it becoming a really interesting uh, teaching that we, we still have available for us. Um, the whole point, or the main point, finally, is to, for us to, uh, to really practice. Uh, because that's, that's what can make the difference in our life. And this is very often coupled with another kind of realization in the, in the Buddhist teaching. And that is, it's very rare. Now, you have to understand that in the Buddhist cosmology, their uh, 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 rebirth is, is taken for granted, that we have some form of us has been alive before and will be reborn into something else. Uh, for some of you, you may not believe it or 
you have a, a, a view neither way, you know, you don't really know. I think maybe for many of us that's true. You don't have to believe it because I can modify it to show you that this is valuable in any case. But what's being said is that uh, the human condition is extraordinarily precious for spiritual work, for Dharma work. If you're in the lower realms, let's say hell realms, this is in the Buddhist cosmology, uh, the pain is too much. The suffering is so much that there's no, you need a certain amount of leisure. You know, uh, some hope, some ray of, uh, what's the cliche, window of opportunity or whatever. Um, where, and, if, and if you're in the heaven realms where everything is just, you know, beautiful uh, celestial music and celestial intellects and everything is just wonderful, total satisfaction, why in the world would you want to start doing all this silly stuff? Your knees start hurting and your back hurts. And those of you who have done retreats know that. Uh, so the human state in this scheme has enough suffering and it has enough joy and leisure. Uh, it's like a nice mix to provide people with the incentive to practice. Now, if you throw away the cosmology, because sometimes it's viewed as just psychological, and that's fine with me too, but just look at the planet. How many people on the planet have the opportunity to do what we're doing tonight? Some of you just sat for 45 minutes. And, uh, do you realize all the conditions that had to come together for, it, for there to be a center, for there to be adequate food, clothing, uh, the teachings being available, uh, enough leisure time, enough... We could go on and on and on. It's, you could say it's uh, gratitude for what we have. The conditions have come together for us in a unique way, which don't last because everything changes, including these conditions. They weren't always here. And if you look around the planet, areas which were very rich spiritually are now like India. So much of India uh, is gone. The India that gave uh, rise to these teachings, much of it is gone. It's not here anymore. The conditions are no longer there. And so if you put that together, we have a unique opportunity um, to flower as humans, to flower, to grow. And uh, understanding that we have this opportunity, but we also don't have forever, if you put that together, it can be quite an incentive to practice. Now, what I'm going to try to suggest, I don't know how deeply we'll get into it tonight, is that even states like aging, sickness, and death are occasions for us to flower. Can be. But it requires a radically different approach to them a radically different way of relating to them. Everyone ages, everyone gets sick, everyone gets, uh, dies. But as you know, m most people are beaten down by it. <coughs> we uh, are uh, deadened long before we die. It's not just that the body becomes old and stiff and sick, it's the mind does. It becomes mechanical and frightened uh, and dull and caught in uh, conditioning that goes on day in and day out, over and over and over again. And certainly these three uh, landmark situations, as we begin to see aging, see the significance of it, which is, of course, it's on the way, and as certain parts of the body break down, and perhaps we find ourselves ill, and then inevitably, inevitably we must leave this body. Uh, is there a way of relating to these natural parts of life they're not weird. 
They're natural. They've been going on for a long time. No sign that they're going to let up. Is there a way of relating to them so that it actually helps us to flower as human beings? And the answer from a Dharma point of view is definitely yes. And I hope to some small degree I can convey that to you during these talks and in a practical way. I'm, it's, a, it's not that I'm an expert on any of this. Anyone who's foolish enough to think they're an expert on aging, sickness, or death, uh, well, I wouldn't want to be in the room. Uh, but rather, um, I've been at it for a while. I didn't just start uh, because my teachers uh, got me going, but also for some reason, even since childhood, I've been interested in certain aspects of it. But I've seen some a way in which this has been helpful for me personally and for a few other people. Um, but of course, the final exam is coming up, you know. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but I won't be around to tell you how it went on, how I, whether I passed or not. Um, one way that I thought of, of conveying uh, these materials is to use the... Um, it's almost the first thing that people read very often when they read the life of the Buddha. It's a kind of mixture of legend and perhaps history, I don't know. Uh, it's the, the story of the four messengers, which may be familiar to many of you. Or if not, I'll give you a brief treatment. And I hope uh, you see that uh, these four messengers uh, are here today and, and uh, we're the Buddha. As many of you know, the Buddha was born into very fortunate circumstances. Uh, was a prince or his father was a king. Uh, but the, uh, the father was uh, informed by an astrologer that uh, this young man was either going to become a world leader, you know, it was like a king, or a spiritual leader, in which case, of course, he would leave home and wouldn't carry on the lineage of his father. And the father tried to, they didn't want that. How many parents want their children to be monks or nuns? Mm -hmm. I have met some in Asia. I remember the first ordination I saw in Korea, and I saw this uh, young, young, uh, young guy, about 19, being ordained as a monk, his head being shaved and so forth, and his mother and sister, and they were sobbing, and I thought, you know, like Jewish parents, you know, they were just, they were happy. You know, they're just so honored that he made that choice, and that was uh, mind-blowing to me, because I hadn't seen that. But in that culture, I don't mean it's uh, all over the place, hardly, but at least there are, for some people, uh, understand that this is a, is a one wonderful choice that a person can make in life to do that, to go that way. In the West we have it too, but it's, I wouldn't say it's a, a major theme. Uh, so the king arranged life, uh, and you can read the details uh, and the stage sets and all the rest that are implied, uh, so that his son would not be exposed to any of the hardship of life for fear that if he saw them, uh, it would arouse some spiritual yearning and, uh, to understand and to go more deeply and, and that he wouldn't want to be uh, a political leader, wouldn't want to be a king. And as you may know, uh, the devas or people from the hell, heaven realms arranged things so that when the Buddha went out with his trusted charioteer, uh, the king had tried to clean up the place, get all these old, sick and dying folks out of there, you know, and just make it really beautiful. 
but they saw to it at first that there was an old person. And the Buddha had never seen an old person. He had been protected. And he wanted to know who that was. The person was bent over and could hardly walk and was, you know, many of the serious signs of aging. And so he asked his charioteer and he said, uh, what is that? And he said, that's old age. Uh, will that happen to me? Yes. And the Buddha was taken aback. And he goes through this in, t in the same way for a sickness when he sees someone in real pain, really very, very sick, and sees a corpse. And all of this is mounting and building up in the, in the, the Buddha to be. He's not the Buddha yet. Uh, Buddha just means an awakened one. It's a generic term. He wasn't awakened yet. And then the fourth messenger uh, was he saw what you could call a yogi, or a samana is the word that's sometimes used, and that meant somebody who had attained some peace. It was somebody who was meditating, uh, uh, in contrast to the old, sick, and dead person. This person was serene, uh, content, at peace. And so the Buddha inquired, you know, like, who are you, and what's this all about, and why, why this? Okay, now if you take the story literally, there's no room for us, because probably most of us are not going to be monks or nuns, or wandering ascetics, or full-time yogis. But uh, that's just a convention. So what you have to understand is what's really important is the mind state. So that it's not that lay people are excluded. For example, the Buddha... Uh, strongly suggested that all of the people in his community, monks, nuns, and lay people, uh, reflect on aging, sickness, and death every day, at least from time to sometime during the day. Hmm, I'm going to get old, I'm going to get sick, I'm going to die, and kind of turn that over a bit and see, see what that's like. So it's not exclusively for uh, monks and nuns. In the story, it's not a nun. Uh, it's, but it's for meditators. It's somebody who's, uh, the inner meaning is for somebody who's uh, seen what a life of attachment to the body leads to. That is, if you are attached to the body, whoa, that's a hard, that's a hard one. Because it's going to be snatched away. You're not going to be young forever. You probably will get sick, and you're definitely going to die. The greatest athletes, the greatest presidents, the greatest historical figures, no matter how powerful they were, no matter how, how strong and robust they were, uh, no one can stand up to this. And so uh, it can be the incentive to begin to uh, inquire, to go to, so is there some place, all the traditions I feel have this, is there some place deeper than all this coming and going? Is there some place that uh, is untouched? by being born and getting old and getting sick and dying? And you can tell by the way I phrased it, of course, the answer is yes. Um, so it applies to us. Uh, we're, um, we have the option of uh, introducing a new way of relating to life, one which is not overly, which is not dominated by greed, hatred and delusion, one which is not primarily motivated by egocentric activity, where uh, our, essentially we're employed by the ego. We're working full-time to set that ego up, 
to make it strong, rehabilitate it when it falls down, uh, maintain it, show it off, present it, enhance it, knock out people who might be a threat to it. What a way to live. But we're all doing it, and countries are doing it. It's all the same dynamic. So is there another way of living other than that? Um, the practice is that other way. What I know best is this practice, but if some of you have come from Zen or Tibetan or Christian, Jewish or whatever, Hindu uh, approaches, you know that all the traditions have some um, uh, vehicle, some medium. If they don't, it's just going to be rhetoric and talk and sentimentality. At any rate, in this particular tradition, uh, these uh, conditions that happen to us, aging, sickness, and death, are meant to be worked with, are meant to be, become the materials for deep and rich meditation. They're not seen as just bad news. Not at all. Um, Hey, I, at the risk of losing some of you who are new here, maybe losing is not the right word, but if, you're, if you ha don't have a meditation practice, I'm going to try and sketch something out about uh, the practice that we have here. It's going to be very, very brief. As I look around, some of you are going to, of course, know what I'm talking about, and some of you are, well, at least plant a few seeds. Um, Whatever approach to vipassana or insight meditation you take, uh, and there are different styles coming from Burma, Thailand, and so forth, uh, they all have a number of things in common. One is some form, some method, some technique that helps you calm and stabilize the mind. Some uh, actual practice, it's not vague, something that you can do on a daily basis that will actually help you change the mind, re-educate the mind, reconstruct the mind, refine the mind, so that if you do it with any sincerity, your mind will be different after a period of time. Just as if you do something with your body, your body can be stronger. Okay? So they all have some approach to that. We often use the breath, we use metta, but there are many others. Uh, these are approaches through retreats, through daily practice, of uh, helping the mind become very steady and calm and clear. Uh, the encouragement that we all give each other to try to be mindful throughout the day in whatever you're doing so that your whole life is really meditative. Uh, it may be new for those of you who are new, but those who've been coming here know that even though it's not easy to do, we are constantly encouraging ourselves to do that so that eating, dressing, being with people, all of it is uh, uh, potentially uh, we, uh, an occasion for us developing this ability to, to be awake, to pay attention to what's happening. So there's a, a, a means of calming and steadying the mind, and then at least in Vipassana, once the mind becomes more clear, more steady, more peaceful, then it's uh, meant to uh, be used. The mind is now fit to see into the nature of the mind-body process, your own mind-body process. To me, that's one of the great gifts of the Buddha. Everyone knows that everything's impermanent and changing. You would have to be 
a fool to not see that. Uh, what the Buddha did, which I think is a, an extraordinary innovation, is that he said, yeah, whole civilizations come and go, whole societies, everything comes and go, goes, and uh, poetry, philosophy, that's all about that, wonderful. But how about turning this now different kind of mind that you have because you've refined it, turning it on your own mind and your own body and see that the law of impermanence is at work right in this, in this moment. So you can get to see what is a mind, finally, what is it? Again, not as ph philosophic conjecture, but rather to observe the workings of your own mind, to observe the nature of your own body and to begin to see that the law of impermanence is at work. No mood stays forever. No bodily condition stays forever. No like or dislike or you tell me whatever you want to talk about. And if you can, so that's, our, that's what insight meditation is. One of the main meanings of it is insight into the changing nature of all formations. And then, of course, if you stick around, you've heard the term emptiness. As you begin to see that everything that arises and passes away, it's just a, a very short step to see that it's empty of a certain kind of substantiality. There's no solid self to whom this is all happening. Again, don't take it as a new ideology or belief and then join the club. I believe that everyone's empty and now I'm, uh, I feel secure. Uh, everyone I, at 331 Broadway believes that. I believe it. Aren't, aren't we wonderful? It's something that is palpable, you see it. But the most profound door into it, at least in this approach, is through seeing impermanence. We already know that everything changes, but you have to see it deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And what's required is a thorough and continuous uh, observation and examination. Now, as the mind becomes more steady and calm, uh, this, it becomes a very joyful and effortless journey. I mean, it, requires, it still asks a lot because, um, because it helps you let go of stuff that we really need to let go of, or mainly suffering. One of the main reasons that we suffer so much is that we attach to things in a fixed way. We become fixated in a changing world. How can that work? If you get, I'm just speaking about three major ways we get fixated tonight. Aging, youth, sickness, health, death, live forever. But there are all these tiny ways in which we get fixated. They're not so dramatic, and we suffer with those as well. But as you begin to see this law of impermanence, uh, whether you call it uh, panya, wisdom, or prajna, whether you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, it's a kind of intelligence. You begin to see, oh, I get it, everything is changing. But that fact has to sink in to the heart so deeply that now the way you live is aligned with the truth. Again, it's not so much an ideology. Maybe it begins there. But more and more, uh, if you pay attention, it's all over the place. It's, life is impermanent. That's what, it's another way of saying it. Everything is constantly arising and passing away. And it's not all bad news. It's news. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily good or bad. Children grow up. Otherwise, I mean, if this weren't true, we'd all, all of us would be stuck at what? We'd all be four-year-olds right now, or wherever, whatever age you liked. So as you begin to see that, uh, it becomes a less bumpy ride. At least that's been my experience, and 
but you have to test that. Be the reason it's a less bumpy ride is that the truth is life is changing. And we've been dancing to the wrong music. Or let's say we dance to one tune, and, we're, and then the music changes, and we're still dancing to that tune. Have you ever tried? You know, it doesn't work. <laughs> so as the mind becomes more clear, it understands that what comes must go. Now, it doesn't follow that you become disillusioned, disenchanted, uh, down on life. It can, but that's not correct practice. Um, if you're practicing insight meditation as, uh, I would say, certainly all the teachers here and at IMS and places like this are teaching it, uh, you're learning how to, to, to um, activate that sense of anicca, impermanence, to see it. It's there to be observed, it's, right? it's all over the place. Okay. As you begin to see that, if we take up reflections like life is uh, that we all must age, uh, we, we, sickness comes uh, and we all must die. Can you see how those are just expressions of the law of impermanence? They're just more dramatic expressions of the same law. So if you see it in yourself in this microscopic way, just see uh, they're here even on a breath. Each breath comes and it goes. Uh, you're uncomfortable and then you're comfortable. You're happy, then you're unhappy. You love uh, CIMC, then you hate it. You're, uh, you couldn't wait to get here, now you can't wait to leave. When's he going to shut up? Okay. But if you watch the mind, that's what it's doing all day long. Okay. Uh, and as that starts to uh, work out, you start becoming, uh, it becomes easier to live. It becomes easier, you, it's easier to really get the fact that you can't be young forever. How could that be? It's just stupid. You know, and you don't become belligerent about, you know, these young people are just stupid, you know. Were we smarter? Uh, I, I know I wasn't. Uh, and uh, if young people get it, maybe this kind of a sort of belligerence between age groups or indifference between them, or uh, we start to understand uh, the nature of what it is we're all enmeshed in, what it means to be alive. And it becomes, it can become uh, less tiring. Now, how you can actually practice with aging, how you can actually practice with sickness and death, I'm not going to go into that tonight, um, but we're going to be very concrete. I mean, I, I'm going to really, I'll talk to you about my own practice, about people who come to the center just like us and report what you can actually do. Uh, and I'd like to leave that for the next time. What, what I'd like to leave you with tonight, though, and, um, are, are two things. One, uh, just practice the way you've been practicing. If you knew and you've come here and you don't know a lot of what I'm talking about, I assume that it's a good chance that you've come here, be, perhaps you're getting interested in meditation. Well, if you learn at least this form, one way or another you'll be learning how to calm the mind and then to see the way things are. And that's quite consistent with everything that's been said tonight. And so uh, that, even though it's not officially, we, now if we said that, you know, let's say this center would be called, let's say, Cambridge Death Awareness Center. <laughs> you know, we'd be, first of all, I'd have to get an honest job because none of you would show up. So we call it Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. Sounds kind of nice. We don't even say Vipassana. We thought that might scare you away. Vipassana, what the heck is that? 
but it's that's what it is. Vipassana is insight into the changing, empty nature of everything. Blah blah blah. Um, but what you can start doing in just your uh, in your own way is from time to time uh, reflect on the fact. I'll give it to you in the Buddha's words. This is from uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, the Book of Fives. I'm just going to give you a few uh, that are relevant. And I am sure to become old. Let me read. There are five facts, O yogis, which ought to be often contemplated by man and woman, lay folk and monk. What are these five? I'm only going to read the first three. I am sure to become old. I cannot avoid aging. I am sure to become sick. I cannot avoid sickness. I am sure to die. I cannot avoid death. In just a kind of common sense way. Uh, when you develop some samadhi, when your mind becomes stronger from doing meditation practice, you can actually take these contemplations as you can take anything. It can be an art form, it can be a thought, and you can go deeper with it because the mind uh, is able to aggregate its energy. It doesn't dissipate its energy so much, and it can go more deeply into whatever it is. But, then, but however your mind is right now, just now and then, just reflect on it, see what it brings up, and just allow that to be something that you do once in a while. Take it inside, turn it over, see what it brings up for you, see the implications of it. It'll be a little different for each one of us, uh, and that could be helpful. Uh, if you want to learn insight meditation, you'll be learning what I, I just described before. Um, what I'd like to leave us with tonight in the remaining few minutes is the beginnings of uh, an attitudinal factor that I consider really important. Having been I've practiced in Tibetan Buddhism, not so much, a lot in Zen, I, uh, nuts and, a, and a lot in the different schools in Theravadan Buddhism. Um, when you start to uh, talk about impermanence a lot, suffering a lot, aging, sickness and death a lot, and so forth, um, it's very, very easy for the mind to, at some level, conclude that life is, is not so worthwhile that it's just this nightmare, let's meditate and get the hell out of here. You know, I mean, you know this is just uh, as if there's some place to go. You know. um, and that is sometimes called a dualistic fallacy, where we set up uh, nirvana as this wonderful place that we read about and then we invent it in this mind, this incredible place that we're going to get to if we keep doing this practice. Uh, we invent a place and time sometime in the future where we leave all our flaws behind and we only have shining, glowing virtue and we get there. Uh, good luck. Okay. Uh, and then there's this dirty, noisy world where people are harsh and eat meat and blow smoke <laughs> in your face and cheat you and are aggressive and competitive and loud. And, uh, and then there's spiritual... You know, and we create a, another... Uh, dualism, another trap really. Um, so there's a delicate balance. Next time I'm going to really try to spell that out more in a more detailed way. That is where, you see the whole point is to have, to live and die with dignity. The point is to not attach to either life or death. That means to fully live and to fully die. Uh, if a person is afraid of death, and check for yourself. If you have a lot of fear of death, check to see if you aren't also afraid of life. 
I found that it's so. They go together. In fact, that's another game the mind is made up. Life is here, death is way at the end of the road somewhere. The truth is, they're holding hands right from the beginning. You know, if you don't want to die, then don't get born. If you don't like being old and sick, then don't get born. I mean, because it, it grows out of that. There's no way around it. And right the moment you're born, you've already begun this process. It's a lawful, natural process. Um, and the mind can't handle it too well sometimes, and it makes up all kinds of things to reassure itself and to help it feel better. Okay. Um, this, the, the approach that I'm going to try to uh, help us all, and I work on this edge a lot, is uh, while you're alive, really be alive. It's not saying that uh, relationships are worthless, don't go to bread and circus, stop doing yoga, uh, give up your massage appointment, cancel it, uh, don't take any food supplements, don't bathe. I mean, it's just all stupid you know, and trivial uh, to fully live. But of course, it's a way of living, and we'll go into that. It's just, um, it's also understanding that we don't have forever. It's, a, uh, it's not detachment so much as non-attachment. It's learning how to live fully and let go. Live fully and let go. Live fully and let go. So the content is not necessarily the issue, whether you wear robes or shave your head or uh, have a three-piece suit or high heels and mascara. Uh, that's not necessarily means you're any less or more holy. Those are just social uh, cartoons, you know, characterizations. Uh, it has to do with, uh, finally, are we free or not? Um, so there's a balance of full, mature recognition of what life is. And, also, and that, that life and death, in, sense, in that sense, are walking hand in hand. And it's an appreciation for courtesy, for civility, for all the amenities, for, in other words, refinement in life and also knowing that we don't have forever. It's not one versus the other. Let me, um, did any of you meet uh, uh, Chan Master Shang Yan when he was here this summer? Uh, you met him? Yeah, he, was, he stayed, with, uh, stayed with us for three or four days and he's a, a wonderful person and teacher. This is what I've been trying to say. I think he says it better. There are some Buddhists who hold a negative view of life. To them, it is burdensome and filled with suffering and declining health. <coughs> Such people ignore the fact that all attainment is rooted in this life and this body. Only through this, quote, burden can we attain Buddhahood. The Buddha said that a human life is a considerable achievement and the opportunity to hear the Dharma rare. A human body is necessary to practice, and it is a prerequisite for a life of wisdom. Life is not something to be wasted. Um, <clears throat> that gets at this balance, but uh, I'm going to read you something from uh, one of my first teachers. This is, uh, she's not Buddhist or, or anything. Uh, probably you never heard of her. You may have heard of Krishnamurti, but Vimla Thakkar is an Indian woman who uh, has a similar teaching to Krishnamurti. She started out at, uh, from a Hindu background, uh, but teaches something rather similar to what we teach here. And she was one of my, not was, I still consider her my teacher. We still correspond. She lives in Mount Abu, India. And let me leave you with this, and then we can, those who want to leave can, and we can see what's on your mind. Vimla is talking about um, 
spending time with one of her teachers a, a, during the last period of his life, uh, a great Indian saint. This is what she says. I recall a moment in the life of an elderly saint whom I held in the highest esteem, Saint Tukroji. He was suffering from cancer. I went to see him in his ashram. He was entirely illiterate. He knew as well as everybody else there that death was at hand. I had known him since my childhood. I had known since my childhood that he woke up at about three in the morning. He kept up the routine even when death was so near. He would tell the doctor and the nurse in perfect composure, quote, put me in a sitting position, sponge the body, change the linen and the bedsheets, light up the lamp and the incense stick. It is time now for me to go into meditation, close quote. And this went on till the end. I paid another visit to his room. The nurse helped him to sit up. He was a Vaishnava devotee, and such a devotee puts some sandal paste on his forehead after he has taken his bath. That's the ritual in that particular tradition, that sect. And so he ordered the attendant to bring the sandalwood paste. When the unguents were brought, he asked the servant, where is the mirror? Do you think because I'm going to die it will do if I put the mark on my forehead in any haphazard way I like? Please bring the mirror also. As long as I'm alive, I'm thoroughly alive. And when I shall die, I shall die as thoroughly. At the moment, I am very much alive and shall sing my prayer songs in full style. Quote. End of quote. So he must have the mirror placed in front of him. He knew well enough that death was near. He knew the day and the time when it would arrive. There could not be a physical condition more critical than the one facing him at the time. He had shrunk to a mere skeleton. He would vomit blood. But when an air of grandeur was there in his manner, but what an air of grandeur was there in his manner when he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm fully alive. Put the mirror before me. And his grand manner, as he put the sandal paste on his forehead, was an entirely amazing sight. It shook me to the roots. He would not neglect the present moment because the hour of death was approaching. So you see, it's not opposites. Uh, it's not this versus that. It's, it's not life sucks. It isn't. Some people kind of slip into that erroneously. Okay, could we have a few moments of silence? Over together. It doesn't have to be a question or a problem. It could just be your own reflection or whatever. And if you're totally new, you're as welcome as the people who've been here for a while. Welcome to speak up. Please. Um, I've done a lot of the, well, for the past year I've worked a lot on focusing on the breath and just staying with that. And at times it's been fantastic. What does fantastic mean? Um, real peace. Just a, there's a smile on my face while I meditate and it's not a, I'm real happy, it's just a very calm and this is right kind of thing, I guess. I understand. Um, I've tried to now go forward into the Vipassana and use my breath and then kind of 
hear the chirp chirp and the, the siren going, things like that. And it seems that I hear chirp chirp and I'm gone. <laughs> I'm back to, I'm with the bird and that's all I hear and all of a sudden now and I have to do this at work and I have to do what about that and all the pain in my knee and I'm gone. I'm, it takes me sometimes the rest of the meditation to realize, whoops, I, I forgot it was just chirp chirp. And I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on how to help with that. I wish I had a little pill that I could give you. <laughs> yeah. But I don't. Uh, that's how it unfolds. That is, uh, and it's different for each person. Um, but uh, <clears throat> one good way of working with it, let's say you start out in a given sitting with your breathing, and you've already, you know it's not a myth for you. You've tasted some of the joy and peace that can come from just simple in and out breath. Practice consciously. Uh, and then you feel you've calmed down, then uh, loosen your grip on the breath and sit and be open to whatever is there. And you do that, and before you know it, you're lost. Caught up in planning, worrying, psychologizing, all that. Okay, you can, uh, as soon as you wake up, in other words, as soon as you become aware that you're unaware, because in those moments you're not meditating, you're just thinking. It, it's not a tragedy or it's not a criminal offense. You know, you just, you wake up and you just start again. Uh, our practice is falling down, getting up, falling down. Uh, some years ago I saw a, a, a friend of mine's child learning how to walk. And I, if only we could be that way, it would be so much easier. The, the child, you know, falls down, gets up, falls down, gets up, falls down, gets up. But not sort of like, what a jerk I am for falling down, you know, and, you know, the other kids, they probably, they've been, they're running a marathon by now, and here am I, you know, uh, none of that. It's just fall down, you get up, you fall down, you get up, you fall down, smile on the kid's face, you know, and, you know, he's one day, we were all like that, I think, from what I was told, okay. Um, but us, no, see, because our big fat ego gets in the way, and, uh, oh, well, you know, birth. okay, so uh, what you can do is you can, you can look, uh, pick it up again, in other words, don't make it into a problem. As soon as you wake up from chirp chirp, whether it's 10 minutes or 10 years, you know, you just start again. Okay. But if you feel it's pretty strong, just practically speaking, go back to the breath for a few breaths. Fine-tune your attention again. Sometimes all you need is a, a, a two or three breaths. In, out, just like tuning a musical instrument, just like in, out, in, out, and then once again open it up. But little by little, you'll learn how to listen to sound, Another thing, uh, listen to thought. Thoughts are just thoughts, sounds. Uh, how to experience strong emotions, how to experience the body in all the different ways it is. Another thing you can do, which is um, sort of uh, walking right into the problem, is um, intentionally, since is it sound that particularly you, that you get caught up in? Or not necessarily? I think that, yeah, probably sound is the primary. Because for some people, that's the easiest thing. Everyone's different. Okay, so when you calm down, don't make it free. Choiceless awareness, you know, where whatever is there. Spend some time where you actually put sound on the agendas, what you attend to. Do you see what I'm getting? And if you go to anything other than sound, come back to sound. Learn how to, that sound is just sound. And then little by little, you'll see that it's, it's really not, doesn't have to be a problem. It's just chirp, chirp. Yeah. Please. Why are you making that face? What?
loving or helping someone who is gravely ill, mm -hmm. may die. Mm -hmm. um, aside from a lot of just listening. Aside from what? A lot of just listening and being there. Yeah, but that's a mouthful. Yeah. You see, if you want, you want to do something for someone else, let's say, someone is dying, okay, and um, the best thing is for you to, well, there are a couple of simple things, which I, I know you know. One is, when a person's dying, uh, give them as much kindness and love and compassion as you can. I mean, that's just everyone, in any, anyone who's human knows that, right? You, okay, now let's say you just said, like, aside from just being there. Well, I didn't mean yeah, no, no. Uh, that was my question. Okay, when I get done with it, you'll see it's a big thing. <laughs> um, to be with someone who's just died. Let's say, look, I just went through that with my mother. My mother just died a couple of months ago. And she was dying for two weeks. Before that, she had her own apartment and everything. Okay. Now, at a certain point, I realized I can't rescue my mother. You know, she's, there's, a, there's a process going on. I tried. I try to give her like, she's not interested in Dharma, she loves me, but she's not, okay. And I try to give her like a concealed Dharma, you know. Uh, you know, so. That's the problem. Okay, but, but it's your problem. Uh, and it was my problem. For example, um, I was holding her hand, okay. And she was struggling, and all the doctors and everyone, all the instruments, uh, they were saying it, it's any time now. It turned out it was longer, but it, it, they were saying any time now. And so I was, I saw her struggling, and uh, the, the, she was working so hard to stay alive. So I started in with my vipassana rap, you know, sort of like, okay, mom, you know, the body has served you well for all these ninety years, and uh, and now it's tired, and uh, you're, it's exhausting to fight with this. You can't fight with nature, and you know, so let go. And she, I was holding her hand. Every time I would use the word let go or anything Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.